came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 13th of July 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And this week our special guest is Richard Stevenson who is at the Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex at Tidbin Villa in the Australian Capital Territory and Richard controls the dishes that are currently talking to about 27 different spacecraft including Juno, Cassini and the Voyager missions. In each episode, we'll have a news roundup. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Richard. Good morning, Brendan. How are you going? Very well, thank you. It's a pleasure today to be speaking with Richard Stevenson. Richard is the Operations Supervisor at the Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex at Tidbin Billa, about 45 minutes drive from Canberra in Australia. Now, before we go into your fabulous work with an amazing array of space missions, we'd like you to tell us a little about your background, please, Richard. Like, where did you grow up? And tell us how you initially became interested in science and engineering and space in the first place. I suppose my formative years were actually spent in South Africa, originally English. My family went out to South Africa in my early teens, turned to the UK for my late teens and, and college education, I suppose. So when did I become interested in science? To be honest, science was never the key. It's always electronics. I've always been very interested in electronics as, as early as I can remember. I was the only kid in the block when I was 12 riding around with a CB radio attached to my bicycle. I didn't particularly want to talk to anybody, but the fact that I could actually attach it to my bicycle and get a, a fairly good swire with the antenna on the back, uh, so I was very happy with myself. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so, so that was at 12, and I actually should point out that my father, he was an instrumentation engineer as well, and he actually, for uh, four or five years, uh, in his late teens, early 20s, was a, a Marconi radio officer. So the family's always had a, an electronics pedigree more than a science pedigree. Very good. So now could you tell us a little about your senior school days and your early ambitions? At that stage, I was starting to be interested in essentially making a career out of electronics. And so uh, I was looking for a path forward. Obviously, my father had been a radio officer, uh, so in his early years, 
was, was a reference point as well. So uh, the fact that I was in Liverpool was even better. So because Liverpool was only one of two places in, in England that uh, actually ran a marine radio and radar course. And then you went on to do some further studies there? Exactly right. So I suppose when I first entered, I had ambitions of following my father to sea. And so the course I was on was actually one provided a qualification as a radio officer. I suppose after three years, so the, the sea was still the, the ultimate aim. But by that stage, uh, we, we'd started having uh, foreign affairs. And so we've also had civil aviation coming to the college as well. So already that path was starting to diverge. So by the time a lecturer walked in and said, who wants to work for NASA in Australia? So I didn't really have to think twice about not going to sea. Very good. And then came Australia and the CSIRO. Tell us about that. It's a strange arrangement. Obviously, this is a, a NASA site. CDSCC is a NASA site. Yep. Uh, there's a, an intergovernment agreement between the Australian government and the US government. And their scientific body being NASA also dropped down to our scientific body being CSIRO. Yep. There used to be a subcontract underneath them as well, so CSIRO didn't directly employ anybody at the site. So what happened then was I was employed by another company called AWA, and the history has always been essentially not defense organizations, but it was a prestigious contract for them. So we have the likes of AWA, British Aerospace, and Raytheon. So over the years, I've worked a number of companies, but the last five years have been working directly for CSIRO. Now, when did you start at the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex? In 1988. So I was a young graduate of 20 when I came across. And so I was actually employed a year earlier than the Voyager 2 Neptune encounter. I was actually employed for the Voyager 2 Neptune encounter. And what is your role at the CDSCC? And tell us about the teams you work with, Richard. Well, no, no, the teams are, are all aging. <laughs> none, of, none, none of us are very young anymore. So I'm operations supervisor Team Alpha. Yep. There's four teams. We work 24-7, not me individually, the teams themselves, 365 days a year. And I have four controllers under me and likewise with the other teams. So although I say I'm the operational supervisor, I'm happiest when I'm, I'm a controller. So I try and keep my hands on the tools as much as possible. Now, could you describe for us how the CDSCC fits into a worldwide network? Everything that we do is part of the, the deep space network. Everything is coordinated from JPL in California, Pasadena. When the network was designed, so they were hoping to have 24-7 coverage to a spacecraft. So if a spacecraft was launched, regardless of where it was, as the Earth rotated, they needed a, a way of providing that 24-7 coverage. They placed a, a complex, a deep space network, around about 120 degrees apart. So as the Earth rotated, so for instance, if the spacecraft is over Goldstone, as it started to set in Goldstone, it started to rise in Canberra. And as it started to set in Canberra, it will start to rise in Madrid. Now, up at Tidbin Villa at the CDSCC, you have several dishes there. Could you describe their sizes and functions and what you have to do as a controller to acquire and maintain contact with various missions? Why don't we break it down initially and talk about uh, our assets on the ground. So we have 170 metre 
And across the networks, we have one 70 meter in each complex, one in Goldstone and one in Madrid. They're the same design, a classic Casagrain antenna, hydraulically powered. All three have a hydrostatic bearing, which essentially on the azimuth, as it slows round, so there's a tiny film of oil that provides a friction-free surface to glide around. They're essentially the, the crop, the pick of the, the crop, I think, the 70 meters. So, yep. and they're the antennas that have allowed us to track the likes of Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Uh, but also some of the closer stuff as well, uh, like the New Horizons. So, whoever would have thought that uh, Neptune was closer. But, uh, so Voyager 1 and 2 have put everything into perspective. And it allows us to get a, a fairly high data rate back from, from those missions. So we do have the 70 meters. Every complex has one. Essentially, that's the pick of the crop. So as far as the higher gain, higher telemetry rates coming down to air. Uh, we also have three beam waveguide antennas as well, which are 34 meters. And they provide, I suppose, the, uh, the legwork. They're, they're the, the workers for the close earth stuff. Uh, we have uh, a number of spacecraft at the Lagrange points, and yep. so they're the perfect size for that. Uh, but also, for some of the further out spacecraft, it also allows us to combine signals through the beam waveguide antennas and provide that extra gain. So even though Voyager 2 is so far out, uh, we can still use a couple of 34 meters combined to support it nicely. We can't transmit to it through the 34 meters. That actually does need the higher gain of the 70 meters. But as far as slow, that telemetry coming down, the 34 meters are fine. Fantastic. Now, let's get specific here. When you have, say, Cassini on DSS-34, what do you do to enable this? And what happens as a consequence of your work? Before I get specific, I should sort of talk generic about what we do. Uh, so essentially, at the site here, uh, we have four controllers. And so uh, we actually operate on the JPL schedule. Uh, JPL being the heart of the DSN, yep. uh, coordinate all scheduling across the network. Yep. So we'll be provided with a series of activities for the day. And so we have levels of automation. So uh, for a controller, at the start of an activity. He'll get his resources blown in and they can be his uplink, downlink, his antenna, his microwave switches, and they all have to be configured for that particular spacecraft, enabled as you put it. So he has a period of time that depends on what the mission is requested. So if it's just a simple downlink only, bringing telemetry down from the spacecraft, it's half an hour. If they start tacking on uplinks or ranging, then obviously there's additional time allocated. We will actually have a beginning of track time where the antenna has to be on point and we're either ready to transmit or ready to receive. And that goes until the end. And every spacecraft is different. For instance, the Voyager, it's actually a fairly simple one. It's a spacecraft that's not particularly dynamic. It's not orbiting. So there's very few activities within that track. It can be a long track. It can be eight or nine hours. But for the period of that support, there's very little to do other than monitoring that everything is good. And at the end of the support, we'll take the antenna back to stow and essentially just unwrapping it because we have great big cables that are used to bring the electronics and essentially the gas that we use here in for our cooling as well. And yep. they all have to, be, have to be unwrapped. So back to stow, ready for the next support. Yep. Now, now Cassini, <laughs> Cassini has been interesting. So, and we'll probably talk about it a little bit later, but Cassini has been a, a real love-hate relationship. <laughs> so you have the science side, which is 100% love, 
and then you have the control inside, which is a little bit of hate sometimes. Yep. Cassini for me has been a real love love hate relationship. The love side obviously is seeing the science coming down, but the more love hate as as being a controller. So it's probably one of the most labor intensive spacecraft to support. Uh, so there's a, a fair amount of manual intervention required when a lot of the other spacecrafts are going so sort of fairly automated. And, uh, you know, Cassini do these, I suppose, experiments that nobody else does. They have this wonderful one called uh, the bi-static radar, where essentially they start bouncing signals off Titan yep. and uh, receiving an our radio science system. And they, they can actually say, see Amazing compositions of, of materials and even surface uh, topography as well. But to actually do that support, the pre-cal is two and a half hours. So we've got two and a half hours. Uh, so it's a, a very complex configuration because all these baselines have to be done before the experiment starts. And at the end, so we have a similar time uh, in post-cal where similar baselines are also drawn. So yes, it's... Uh, Brilliant science coming down, but with the controller, it's a lot of hard work. Fantastic. That is just amazing. Now, in any one week, Richard, how many spacecraft are you in contact with, and what are your current missions apart from Cassini and Voyager? You know, Brendan, so if you'd asked me half an hour ago, I wouldn't have a clue. (laughs) So I come in and support what I see. But the fact that you did give me a bit of a heads up, so I did a quick tally of how many spacecraft supports we do. So this is, and remember, we might do a couple of supports per spacecraft. We do more than 100 in a week. So that supports particular spacecraft. And also we do 27 missions. So there's 27 spacecraft that we we support. And this is the, to this week. So this is the current week. So as you can tell that the Voyagers and the Cassinis are just a tiny part of the repertoire that we do on, on a weekly basis. So that's a huge amount of work. Now, you're sending instructions to these spacecraft or relaying instructions to the spacecraft. What happens to the data that you receive back from the spacecraft? Well, strange enough, it's the same path. If you look at the project and, you know, it's, uh, you look at the Cassini project, that's JPL, but we track a number of spacecraft from, from all over the world, from different agencies. We track uh, the Indian MOM, Montreal, so, which is currently orbiting Mars, Japanese Hayabusa's, so, and the ESA NEXT as well. So we did Rosetta too. It's a similar path, essentially. So it starts off with a mission, wherever that may be. All data or all commands are sent through JPL. So think of JPL as a hub. And then out to the complex. And the reverse for telemetry, we have a spacecraft, comes down the complex, and then gets transmitted to JPL, where it's distributed back to the mission. So it really is an international collaboration. Fantastic. Now, I'm sure everyone has watched the movie Apollo 14. What do you have to do as a controller when the words... Oh, we're talking 13. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going, I haven't seen that movie. You you threw me a (laughs) curveball. I was just going to throw in there, what happens when you see LOS or loss of signal on your screen? Well, there's a number of different scenarios of when we'd see LOS. One of them is predicted. So every time a spacecraft goes behind a planet in occultation, so we'll have an LOS. And hopefully, when it comes out of occultation, we'll have an AOS, an acquisition signal. Yep. It's the unexpected 
elevators that uh, really have us worried. And that can be for a number of reasons. So, well, we'd like to think it could be a number of reasons. We always look at the ground first because that's the easiest one to troubleshoot. So yeah. we make sure that all our ground systems are okay. Then, so we start looking at the spacecraft as, as being an issue. And we look at a sequence of events which incorporates everything the spacecraft is doing. And, you know, we'll see whether it's going through a maneuver. It could possibly be going off the point. But we look, we look for a, a reason why we'd have LOS. And if that fails, then we start thinking, oops, there could be an issue. Then we start looking at the mission contingencies. And uh, normally when a spacecraft uh, so hits an anomaly, uh, it has something called safing mode or contingency mode, where it will start reconfiguring its transmitters, sometimes for a different band, sometimes for a different frequency, always for a, for a lower bit rate. And you might even switch antenna. It might go from a high-gain antenna to a low-gain antenna. Yep. And uh, we have to start looking for that as well. And if after oh, we've gone through all these paths and we still haven't seen then we start panicking. Yep. And at that point, that's when the, uh, the mission uh, gets informed. And so that's when the recovery starts. And so normally, so we liaise fairly tightly with the mission on that because uh, uh, obviously all the recovery commands have to come directly through them. I imagine it's quite a roller coaster sometimes, Richard. <laughs> Actually, it's funny. So it doesn't happen often. And so I think for the first couple of minutes, you're generally in denial. So, oh, you'll come back. So, yep. But yes, when it does go, and in my oh, nigh on 30 years, there have been many times when we just think, oh, it's gone. <laughs> we're, we're not. And of course, we'd, we'd check our spectrum and the CNO downlink as well. And uh, we, we have had missions that have, have ended on a, simply an LOS. So I think uh, Mars Orbiter was, was one classic one when it was going through a deceleration just before it went into orbit around Mars. It traveled all the way to Mars. It was going through its final braking and deceleration to whip it around into orbit and we lost it. And then you think, okay. So after multiple days, then you start going back to the scenario and we, you know, we actually found that they were just pressurizing the, the fuel tank at the time. And although you can't be there to see exactly what did happen, the investigations are, are fairly in depth. And in that case, uh, so they, they said that the chances are the spacecraft just exploded. Um, on that pressurization, there was a failed valve. So sometimes there's nothing you can do. And, you know, what's two, $2 billion between friends? <laughs> Fantastic. Now, you mentioned earlier, Richard, the Voyager missions. Now, yeah. those Voyager spacecraft are so far away. Voyager 1 is over 20 billion kilometers away. How can you possibly hear it? <laughs> well, I, I was asked this same question. So, and, Strangely enough, uh, distance isn't everything. Uh, you start looking at what the mission had planned. And the Voyager so it has a great big high-gain antenna. It has uh, an RTG, you know, that's the plutonium pellets. Uh, the, although the, the electric output has dwindled, it's still keeping it going. So it's not something that's just going to disappear. Yep. And, and also when you start off on a mission, you have a high rate. And as you get further out, you start dropping the telemetry rates. 
Um, currently with Voyager, uh, Voyager 2 is so down to 160 bits per second. So you think, in fact, there's billions of kilometers away, so it should be our smallest serve source, but strangely enough, it's not. We have a number of projects that uh, have a high gamma antenna, and when it points to Earth, we have a very high telemetry rate coming down. But when they're collecting science, we might orientate that high gain antenna to a planet or another source, which means they'll communicate through a low gain antenna which is a little more than a pig antenna sitting out the back. And so in that case, what we see is, is an extremely low signal. And in many cases, they're actually lower than the Voyager signal. And also lower bit rates as well. We can have 10 bits per second coming down or 40 bits. Yep. So Voyager 2 isn't a huge challenge, strangely enough. Fantastic. We're reaching the end of our questions here, Richard, and this one is for you. What are some of your most memorable or favourite missions? Well, you can gather. So if you start looking at a a mission lifespan of about uh, three or four years, uh, so I've I've seen many of them in my time. But even now, it's the enduring ones that are are my favourite. I think the villagers will always be. They they were here when I started, and, and hopefully they'll be here when I retire. Yep. Uh, which, which is unusual for technology. Yes. But, you know, I was talking about the love hate with Cassini, so I've just, I've had such a buzz with Cassini. And I think that's partially due to the mission itself, as in the people behind the spacecraft. Uh, they really are, uh, you know, when they receive that science data, they're very quick to update everybody and release, release it. You know, we can actually be supporting one of their downlinks and the day after they'll, they'll start releasing the raw footage. So as far as a, a feeling of your part of the mission, I think Cassini uh, wins hands down. Uh, they've done a very good job. But there's, you know, I, I love the rovers, so the Mars rovers, so when Pathfinder with its petals uh, <laughs> and its airbags so that we said uh, seriously, and, and when they worked, that they were, they were great. So the Mars as well, the Mars Exploration rovers, and uh, MSL. Now, so we, we learned early on, I think, that uh, when we do throw a, a lander down, it's nice to, to get a blow-by-blow as it goes through the atmosphere, and it has certain milestones ticked off. And uh, we didn't have that with Pathfinder and Mars, but the fact that we started using our Mars relay spacecraft meant that with MSL we could. So as it was going through the atmosphere, we were getting this, uh, you know, sort of uh, the heat shields off, the parachutes deployed, you know, the sky crane, and ultimately touched down. Yep. Um, for me, that was the biggest buzz. So I was uh, so, uh, on that day and just getting that. We, we knew it was, a, was a, I think it was seven minutes of terror or nine minutes of terror. Yes. And, but it was the most, probably the most thrilling journey that I think I probably had in, in, in my career here. It was, it was great. We were always riding along on it. Fantastic. Well, you and the teams you work with, Richard, are providing the most amazing science from all of those missions. I think there might be a few teary eyes when Cassini does its 22nd loop. (laughs) Actually, the the Cassini mission has released a a video uh, of of its final dive in with it disintegrating to dramatic music. And (laughs) it's it's right up there with the tear jerkers. So, so yes, the, the, you know, there's a, a feeling of success, and but there's the you know, so the, the, the sadness of, of, of a loss of mission. So and it's something that uh, you know we've we've had in, in the skies for for 20 years. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Richard Stevenson, 
It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Brandon. Catch you next time. You can keep up with what's happening at the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex by following at Canberra DSN on Twitter or follow Richard personally at NASCOM1. Let's cross to Adelaide now and talk to Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's things going? Very well, thank you. It's great to be talking to you again. And first up, congratulations on being nominated for the Unsung Hero Awards that will be announced in August in National Science Week. It will be on forward to finding out who the other finalists are, and it'd be really nice if I was the unsung hero, but many people toil endlessly without reward to bring science communication to the public, so whoever wins it will deserve it utterly. Well, I went and read the criteria, and you particularly tick all the boxes, so good luck with that, Ian. Thank you very much. Okay, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? Up in the sky this week, a number of things. Our listeners have been watching the Western Horizon shortly after sunset. They will have been noticing a bright object moving out of the glare of the twilight into progressively darker skies. This is our friend Fleet Mercury. Uh, as I mentioned last week, this month and the beginning of next month is the best time to see Mercury in the evening for those of us in Australia and the Southern Hemisphere. For your listeners in the Northern Hemisphere, this is probably one of the worst times because Mercury will be very low to the horizon. In the Southern Hemisphere, though, we, if it hasn't been raining, um, <laughs> it, yes, it's been one of those weeks. If you've had clear skies, you'll have been seeing Mercury rising out of the twilight into darker skies. And as it goes on over the next week and a bit, you'll see Mercury rising higher into the twilight. And it's heading towards the bright star Regulus, Alpha Leo. So over the coming weeks, you'll be able to see Mercury heading towards this bright star. And the main event will occur in the week after that. Mercury and Regulus and the crescent moon will all turn up together. But for the next couple of weeks, you'll just see Mercury heading towards Regulus and becoming more and more visible. If you raise your eyes from Mercury towards the northwestern horizon, you'll see our own old friend Jupiter. Jupiter is well past opposition, but it's still really good in telescopes. Sadly, Jupiter is becoming lower and lower in the sky at its highest in the sky just before astronomical twilight. However, for the rest of this month, it's still going to be relatively high in the sky for some time setting just around about midnight, so you still have plenty of time to observe it in a telescope. Jupiter is in between the relatively bright star Pyra in the constellation of Virgo and the brightest star in Virgo, Speaker, Alpha Virginis. As Jupiter slowly moved back towards Speaker, and probably around about the end of the week, a bit covered by this podcast, Jupiter will look nice in the evening sky. Very good. As Jupiter's moons look really nice if binoculars or small telescopes or big telescopes, and you'll be able to see Jupiter's moons going in front of Jupiter and their shadows crossing in front of Jupiter, going behind Jupiter, coming out of eclipse. It's well worth those moons dancing. Even if you've just got binoculars, you can see Jupiter's moons moving about, and it will be really interesting to watch. Fantastic. 
And of course, as you move uh, across from Jupiter to the northeastern skies, you'll be able to see the, the question mark of Scorpio uh, dominating the northeastern horizon. So if you look at the dark rift covers the centre of the Milky Way, on the edge of that dark rift, just under Scorpius, you'll see a warm golden light that is Saturn. Now, Saturn doesn't do anything particularly exciting for the next couple of weeks, but looking at it through a small telescope, you'll always be able to see its rings, which are absolutely marvellous. If you've got a moderately large telescope, you should be able to see Titan relatively easily as it moves around Saturn. Saturn's smaller moons are generally out of reach. They're less exciting to watch than Jupiter's moons. But if you've got a decent amateur telescope, you may want to spend some time looking at Saturn's moons as they move about. Fantastic. Now, if we move to the morning skies, they're going to see some interesting things. Venus is still dominating the morning skies. It's moving slower, slightly lower towards the horizon over the coming weeks. But as I said in the previous podcast, Venus is beginning to move between the uh, well-known uh, of stars, the Pleiades, and the slightly lesser-known uh, cluster of stars called the Hyades. The Hyades is an A-shaped, or a V-shape from the northern hemisphere. The brightest star in that group is Aldebaran, and over the coming weeks, we'll see Venus move closer to Aldebaran, and around about the 13th and 14th, Venus moves into the head of the Hyades and forms a what is effectively a second eye, Aldebaran is the uh, is uh, classically forms one of the eyes of Horus the bull, and Venus will be on the other side of the uh, A shape from Aldebaran, making a second eye. One other thing you will see in in the morning, but as the week goes on, you'll see the moon coming closer and closer, and on the twentieth, the crescent moon will be in the head of Horus the bull, just above Venus. And uh, on the 21st, uh, crescent moon will be below Venus. So that will look really nice in the morning. We'll see the crescent moon in the head for us. Very good. Um, if you're out in the morning, no meteor shower peaks at the moment, but the southern Aquarians are beginning to ramp up towards their peak at the end of the month, and there's a couple of other minor showers that are happening. So you'll probably see some nice meteors. Excellent. Now, Ian... Do you have a tangent for us this week? I certainly do, and I have several tangents packed into one. And that tangent comes back to occultation. Occultations can be quite spectacular, like the occultation of Aldebaran, or in previous years we've seen occultations of Jupiter, Saturn and Venus, all of which are rather spectacular and very beautiful to watch. And you may remember the occultation on this year, and there was a series of occultations of Regulus uh, seen in the Southern Hemisphere, um, where the bright star Regulus uh, goes behind the, the moon, and it can be uh, uh, and, and it's very interesting to see it disappear and then pop up from the dark side of the moon. Now, the moon's not the only object that causes an occultation. I've talked about the occultation of Jupiter's moons by Jupiter, which is also interesting to watch. But as this is, of course, the Astrophys podcast, uh, I'd like to take it uh, towards uh, something that's more astrophysical. And as you, uh, the New Horizons mission, having uh, done its task with uh, Pluto, is now heading towards a object in the Cupia belt, infamously named as 2014 MU69. 
Um, and we know a little bit about uh, 2014 MU69 from observations through the uh, Hubble Space Telescope. This object is so far away and relatively small that its magnitude is around magnitude 27 and can only be effectively seen by uh, really big uh, telescopes. But what's uh, happened recently is in order to get a better idea of the size and shape, it was noted that MU69 was going to uh, occult a star. So uh, even though you can't see MU69 itself with modern-sized uh, telescopes, it was going in front of a relatively dim star, but still much brighter than the QP belt object itself. And so by looking at the occultation, you're able to see how big the object is. So by having various observers along the occultation path, you're able to work out from where you see the star wink out. You can work out not only the size, but also the shape oh, wow. of MU69. And this is uh, used a lot by amateur observers to work out the size and shape of asteroids. We can detect binary asteroids, uh, irregular asteroids, by looking at the shape of the shadow as it goes across the star. That's fantastic, Ian. It is, it's, it's fantastic. It's a little bit mind-boggling because something as simple as watching a star blink out, you can work out uh, details of uh, this object that you can only resolve as a spot in the most powerful telescopes. It requires very precise tracking of the path of the asteroid. So they set up, set up a, a, a telescope fence across South America and the bottom of South Africa, and they saw nothing. Wow. Uh, which means that either MU69 is a lot smaller than people thought, and this could be because MU69 is actually brighter. They were assuming MU69 was a bit like many of the other Cuvia Belt objects and being quite dim and red, uh, based on what we'd seen through the Hubble telescope, but actually brighter than uh, uh, assumed. Uh, it would actually be smaller, and so the shadow would be smaller and wouldn't be seen with the, with the telescope spacing that they had. The other possibility is that it may be a binary object where it, it, the MU69 is not a single object, but a pair of objects rotating around each other. And so if that's uh, so, again, the, the size and the shape of the shadow will be completely different from what they're estimating, and so they'd miss it. So we've learned something really important about MU69, and that it is, Nothing might be expected. Now, there's two other occultations of MU69 coming up. Uh, one goes over Antarctica, and so probably we won't get very much data from there. But the second, third one later on in the year, they're going to look at it again uh, using a, a range of telescopes spread out over the, the occultation path, and they're going to try and make the picket fence of telescopes much denser so that they can pick up if the object is um, small or a binary and, uh, and have a much better idea of what's going on. And they're also going to be uh, using some infrared telescopes to try and detect if there's any debris around uh, MU69 that might be visitors to the New Horizons mission. And what a fantastic collaboration between professional and amateur astronomers. It is indeed. But it brings me to another uh, occultation. Yep. Do you remember uh, Charlie Oh, yes. Yeah, and uh, we remember it because it's an asteroid with a ring system. Yep. Uh, or we, have, we assumed it was a ring system from 
the occult, uh, using a very uh, an occultation system like we've just been talking about. Uh, there's another series of occultations of Charikvo coming up, and one's just happened, and I've just seen the data from that, and it's con the rings. And it, there's very little more amazing than watching a star blink out, then blink out again uh, as the ring goes across it, then blink out again as the main body goes across, wow. and then blink out again as the next ring goes across. <laughs> so it's, it's confirmed that Charikbo has rings, and it's pretty amazing. So uh, there's another example where using something really simple, the ability of a, an object to go in front of a brighter star can give us a well amazing information about bodies that we can't get directly from observing them. And, and we found lots of information. For example, by using an occultation, we've been able to get a feeling for the size and density of the atmosphere around Pluto, for example. Yeah. Um, they're also looking at uh, occultation Triton, get a better idea of, uh, about uh, what's happening on uh, uh, this uh, distant moon. But at the expense of I'll going a little bit further, I'm going to mention one other occultation which is coming up in September. Okay. Uh, and this is the occultation of a, a star PD110 by an exoplanet. Yep. This exoplanet appears to have a ring system by looking at the way the light dips as the uh, planet goes in, across it, uh, in front of its star. Uh, the, our best guess is that um, the exoplanet around PD110 is... Uh, has a massive ring system, much more massive than Saturn's ring system. Wow. You remember, uh, people, people are listening to our podcast may remember uh, some time back we talked about uh, Tabby Star, Tabby Star, which has these really weird dips in light around it. And oh. one of the suggestions is that the weird dips in light around Tabby Star is due to a ring planet with uh, Trojan asteroids ahead and Trojan asteroids behind. Yep. Well, the dip in light caused by Tabby, uh, around Tabby Star, caused by its, uh, whatever is causing it, uh, is much less than the dip in light uh, seen by the exoplanet going around PD110. And again, this is another possibility where amateurs are armed with uh, reasonable telescopes, yeah. uh, not, uh, not uh, a fantastic telescope, but reasonably good telescopes could be able to see the dimming of the light, a better idea of the exoplanet around it uh, and, and maybe help resolve the um, conundrum of whether or not this really is a ringed world. Fantastic. What exciting times when all of that relatively sophisticated technology is now in the hands of people in their backyards. That's correct. I mean, uh, uh, again, coming back to this being the astrophysics podcast, there's a whole range of backyard astrophysics and not necessarily, you may or may not consider uh, um, um, occultations to determine uh, planet sizes to the astrophysics, but it's uh, very definitely a, a, a contribution to astronomy that amateurs can make a significant contribution to. So it's it's more than just watching things that we can say, oh, they're pretty. It's uh, about providing information that will tell us far more about our solar system and what goes on with it. Thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. No worries. It was a, a pleasure. And I think for my next uh, tangent, I'll talk about uh, asteroids mas masquerading as comets and comets masquerading as asteroids. <laughs> Fantastic. Good night, Ian Musgrave. 
good night, Brenda. May your skies be clear for the most interesting things, and may you get rain when you need it, <laughs> but not to, to rain out uh, occultations and planetary vistas. You can find out what's up in the night sky by checking out Astro Blogger or follow Ian F. Musgrave on Twitter. Next up, the news. First up, gravitational waves are making waves again. This is from a press release from the ESA, the European Space Agency. Following the success of the LISA Pathfinder mission, the ESA has just selected a new mission for LISA. It involves a trio of satellites that are put in orbit. But let's go back a little bit first. About a century ago, Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity predicted gravitational waves, but they remained elusive until the first detection was directly detected by a ground-based laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory in September 2015. That signal was triggered by the merging of two black holes some 1.3 billion light-years away. Since then, two more events have been detected, and the ESA has plans afoot to put a laser detection system in space. How it works? These three satellites that make up the LISA constellation will be deployed into orbit around Earth, and once there, they will assume a triangular formation spaced 2.5 million kilometres apart and follow Earth's orbit around the Sun. Here, isolated from all external influences but Earth's gravity, they will then connect to each other by LISA and begin looking for minute perturbations in the fabric of space-time. In a similar way to the LIGO experiment and other gravitational wave detectors, the LISA mission will rely on laser interferometry. This process consists of a laser beam being split in two, then recombined to look for interference patterns. In LISA's case, two satellites play the role of reflectors, while the remaining one is both the source of the lasers and the observer of the laser beam. When a gravitational wave passes through the triangle established by the three satellites, the lengths of the two laser beams will vary due to the space-time distortions caused by the wave. By comparing the laser beam frequency in the return beam to the frequency of the sent beam, LISA will be able to measure the level of distortion, and these measurements will have to be extremely precise since the distortions they are looking for affect the fabric of space-time on the most minuscules of levels, a few millionths of a millionth of a metre over a distance of a million kilometres. Luckily, the detection technology has already been tested in LISA Pathfinder. Over the coming weeks and months, the ESA will be looking over the design, budgeting, the whole program, and designing a launch for 2034. Yes, that's planning ahead, but a lot of great science will be happening between now and then, even before Lisa goes into space. Good luck, Lisa. And congratulations to the ESA. And our next news item is fantastic. 
Australia has just formed a strategic partnership with the European Southern Observatory. Australian astronomers will have competitive, merit-based access to all of the ESO telescopes at the La Silla Paranel Observatory under the same scientific conditions and procedures as their counterparts in the ESO member states. Australian industry will have a right to tender competitively for ESO work contracts at the La Silla Paranel Observatory on the same basis as their counterparts in ESO member states. Australian institutions will be placed on the same footing as institutions in ESO member states for involvement in instrumentation for the La Silla Paranel Observatory. And finally, Australian applicants will have preference in the same way as nationals of the ESO member states in recruitment for ESO international staff member positions. That is fantastic. It's taken a long time to get this strategic partnership in place, but congratulations to all those who've worked so long and so hard to make it happen. It was wonderful to see this agreement signed this week. That's the news, and that is Astrophys for this week. You can follow at Astrophys on Twitter or find Astrophys on Facebook. All our episodes can be found on iTunes, on our Astrophys WordPress site, and Astrophys on SoundCloud. Our next episode is in two weeks. Radio Wave!